This is Creative Mornings, a podcast showcasing the global creative community. This episode is brought to you by Monotype. For just $9.99 per month, the Monotype library subscription puts fast and easy access to more than 9,000 fonts at the fingertips of small creative agencies and freelancers, so they can spend less time searching for the right font and more time working on their designs. Learn more about the Monotype library subscription or sign up by visiting myfonts.com or fonts.com. Hey everybody, welcome to the podcast. This is Matt, and this week we're going to Creative Mornings Johannesburg to hear from Milisutando Bongela, an award-winning writer and blogger and the arts editor of The Mail and Guardian. Her writing focuses on issues of race, gender, and class in post-apartheid South Africa. It's a political newspaper, so it's quite critical content that we deal with. It's not so much entertainment and lifestyle. Sometimes we'll dip into that, but mostly it's kind of um, pieces that respond to what's happening, uh, you know, in the country and in the world. And and you're also working on a documentary right now, right? The documentary is on the intersection of hair and black identity in post-apartheid South Africa. And it's basically about mine and my generation's experiences in white schools um, in the early 90s, um, because we were kind of the first kids to experience kind of intimate relationships with white people after apartheid. And so it's a report card on on, on the Rainbow Nation project, essentially. Um, but it uses hair as a tool through which to um, uh, talk about black identity now um, and black beauty and, and how black femininity, black womanhood um, functions in the world and why, why we are, why, why there's a feminist movement at the moment in the country. So something random about your talk, I was watching the video in doing preparation for this interview and I noticed that you may have had the most comfortable chair in Creative Mornings history. <laughs> I specifically requested it. It wasn't in the room and I, it was outside the room and I said, I would like that chair, please. <laughs> and so aside from being incredibly comfortable, um, tell me about your Creative Mornings experience. What I really liked while it was happening was that I allowed myself to become very vulnerable and then to stay in that space, to stay in that vulnerability and to 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 look at the audience um, or engage with them, not from an intellectual perspective, but from a, I wanted to look at their feelings. Right. You know, I wanted to speak to their feelings rather than their brains. Um, I think we, we spend a lot of time talking to each other's brains and like our intellectual selves and not enough time um, seeking each other out emotionally. And I thought, okay, let me just be honest. Let me stay in this vulnerability on a space, which is quite rare. Like other talks, people want your ideas, they want your opinions, but they don't really want to know how you feel. And I think that vulnerability shows, and you did a great job of connecting with the audience. Did, did you feel the same? Yes, yes. Um, and you know, something went quite strange and, and quite, quite wonderful happened afterwards. Um, uh, people were like literally lining up. I felt like I was Oprah or something <laughs> because people were lining up like shake my hand and to hug me and to say thank you and like this this is the kind of connection I want this is this is what I this is how I want to contribute to the world you know I, I want to touch people in I don't want to I don't want to just share ideas only I, I want to share you know a deeper a deeper sense of connection with people there's a bit more from our conversation after the talk but right now here's Mila Sutando Bongela from Creative Mornings Johannesburg in July of 2016, speaking as part of a series on love. Enjoy. 
it's been really cold this morning and I, I stood out there in the sun um, trying to warm up and I found a little poem that warmed me up and I would like to share that with you. It's very, very short. Um, it's by a poet called Naomi Shiab Nye. Please describe how you became a writer. Possibly, I became a writer as refuge for our insulting first grade textbook. Come, Jane, come. Look, Dick, look. Were there ever any duller people in the world? You had to tell them to look at things? Why weren't they looking to begin with? That's the end of the poem. <laughs> um, it says on my cue cards, take a deep breath and look at the audience. So I'm going to look at you so that um, I don't feel like I'm talking to people I can't see. Um, a lot of me comes out when, I'm, when I can see people's faces, um, when I connect with the God inside of you. Um, I'm going to take us back to primary school with the cue cards, by the way. Um, I'll start by sharing a little bit of facts, other facts um, about me. Um, and the aim of this was to calm me down and to charm you at the same time. Um, so I was born on a Tuesday, um, on the 30th of April in 1985, in a little town called Amtata. I'm the second of four girls, born to two very loving parents, one Koliswa Yunolia Bongela and K.S. Bongela. The last meal I ate was a nachi, a banana and a croissant. Um, the book I'm currently reading is, the name escapes me, actually, that's the truth. It's a book about the Amazon. Um, and the last text I got was from, I think, Ross. And it said, cool, I just got here. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm here to talk about love a very, very big and intimidating subject, one that has tormented and tortured human beings for centuries. Um, and I was very reluctant to come here today to kind of tackle such a big subject in 20 minutes. Um, um, and I kept asking myself, what do I know about love? So by the end of this, I hope to share with you some nuggets, some crumbs of wisdom that I have learned through uh, life experience and also through seeking this kind of knowledge. I'll start by my name, actually. Um, my name is Milisu Tando. And for people who speak Tosa um, or Sesotho, uh, they can kind of make sense of what that could mean. It means to represent love, um, to stand for love, to literally stand up for love. Um, my parents named me that because they say that my birth made their love stronger. So there's two meanings to it. So, it made their love stronger, but in the, other, in the other sense, if I were to use it as an individual, it means to represent love. So, it's quite apt that I'm here talking about this. Um, in my reluctance, I burnt my Mbepo and asked my ancestors, why are you sending me to do this? Um, and the man I love says that I'm an ancestor's witness. He says, I'm one step removed from a Jehovah's Witness because I'm always talking about my ancestors. <laughs> <laughs> Trying to get people to um, <laughs> believe. <laughs> he also says that the ancestors have a lot of airtime these days because everybody seems to be getting a calling. <laughs> so I want to know, why, why have they called me here today? What could I possibly know about it? Um, so in my preparation, 
I started to think about um, what love is in Isikosa. Um, what did my ancestors say in the 17th century or the 15th century think of the concept of love? While it was tormenting the romantics in the, in the 18th century in Europe, who were writing about it in novels and poems, and eventually which filtered out to films and the kind of love we have an understanding of today. What was their um, understanding of utando, which I think is quite different from love? Um, this is the beauty of language. It allows one to think from different perspectives. So I was thinking about utando, and I thought, what could it have meant to them? Did they have it as something that they announced or pronounced the way love is pronounced and announced in the Western paradigm or in the English language? Um, and I realized that they probably didn't. I did not grow up being told I am loved. I did not grow up being um, reminded or it wasn't pronounced or announced in the way that it was for American kids in the movies. When I was 11, in fact, my sister and I thought that our parents didn't love us because when they would drop us off at school, they wouldn't kiss us on the lips like the white girls' moms would kiss them on the lips. And so we, in a new culture, in a new world, wanted them to express love in the way that we were seeing it expressed in this world. But when I really thought about it, love wasn't absolutely everything we do. Love is the essence of Ubuntu. It was and continues to be in the way Abantu talk to each other, the way they greet each other. There's no village that you go into in South Africa where you can just simply walk past someone and say hi, or hey, what's up? You go to the Eastern Cape, um, and before you reach your destination, you've probably seen 10 or 15 people who are going to sit and want to know everything about you. Oh, hi, and they will tell you the whole story about their lives. Um, and in those, in those moments, um, those still moments where the banal becomes meaningful, it becomes expanded, um, those greetings represent love. Um, it's in the way we drink. Um, back in the day, and um, to some extent today, a lot of people, when they drink, they don't just mindlessly consume alcohol. First, they pour it on the ground and honor people who've come before them to say thanks for this before they take sips. Um, it's in the rituals that are involved in um, birth, in death, and, and coming-of-age ceremonies where those moments in life are kind of contained in acknowledging that I'm grateful to whoever came before me and whoever's coming after me for this moment. Um, it's in the relationship with nature and animals um, and the symbiotic relationship historically. Of course, that's getting uh, ruined by the day. But historically, the relationship between nature and animals um, and, and people, Abantu, was quite significant. And of course, it's in the naming. Um, when a child is named in Guni or Bantu languages, or most African languages, she or he gets a name that has been well-considered and a, way, a name that is connected to something much deeper than the actual word, um, so that they carry that with them, that knowledge, that, um, those blessings from whoever. Um, and, and for me, I mean, I kind of feel pressure to constantly represent that love. The older I become, the more I understand the importance of love um, um, and, and, its, and its ability to connect humans desperately, so it's something we desperately need. Um, I'm feeling pressure to live up to that name, um, and it's something that I was gifted with um, when I was a child. Um, so, yeah, love, love is not something that 
from where I come from. It's not something that, wasn't, that had to be taught. It kind of just was the way things are. But I've just finished reading this really interesting book by philosopher Alain de Botton called The Course of Love. Very, very interesting um, take on how love in the 21st century is a result of um, the romantics who completely are, he, he says they are the enemy of love because they kind of want us to love in a very unrealistic way. Um, the narratives of love that have been spread around the world have come from romantics who used to walk by the sunset and in the meadows and have a lot of time. They didn't have any jobs, so they had a lot of time to fall in love and wander off and, and write these romantic notions of love. And because of the media and how powerful and pervasive it is in our culture, we have held on and latched onto an idea of romantic love only and kind of ignored all the other types of love there are between the self, between community, between siblings, between parents, between friends. Um, and it has resulted in a disaster, as he would say, <laughs> of, of our expectations of love. Um, so he says, yeah, the romantics have hijacked the concept of love and I'm having to unlearn, um, as a modern person who's grown up in the Western paradigm, I'm having to unlearn ways to relate to, um, first of all, myself and secondly, my partner. Um, instead, of, instead of, I think that the difference between what the ancestors um, or people who came before us um, would see between what, how they did it and how we do it is that it's something that we, we talk about much more than we actually do. Um, it's not, it, we still have to learn how to really practice how to do it on a daily basis besides pronouncing it and writing it everywhere. Um, where does it come from? Um, oh, sorry. Um, there's, this, there's this thing that I've been wrestling with in the past two years um, called black love, um, which as a concept, I think it came from black hate. Um, I was trying to find out where does, this, where does this idea of black love come from, and I realized it came from black hate, the same way feminism comes from the hatred or denigration of women, the same way um, the LGBTQI community comes from um, the misrepresentation or hatred of uh, multiple expressions of sexuality, and the same way something like communism comes from um, capitalism and systems that we, that we, that we have produced, um, that we exist within now. So, it also made me understand that, or coming to this conclusion and this understanding made me realize that um, love is a result of balance in nature. Just as we have black, we have white. Just as we have up, we have down. Just as we have night, we've got day. Just as we have left, we've got right. And love is probably, uh, or our yearning for it is probably because of the amount or the, 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 the kind of hatred we have in the world. Um, so ultimately, it's, a, it's a, a product of nature. And I'm learning that the difficulties that come with it are my friend. They're there to help me become a better person. They're, they're there to help me become uh, a vessel of love. Um, I, I believe that the, the current expression of explicit hatred in the world um, that we're seeing everywhere, uh, kind of magnified by the internet and our... Um, uh, popular culture is directly because of the current explicit expression of love and people who have been used to um, kind of being the, 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 the mats or the doormats of the world are saying enough now. We want to get to know ourselves, we, we want to love ourselves and I feel like um, 
that nature, that balance, the, the, color, the explicit hatred is exactly because people are cl claiming themselves and, and, and you know, going towards that love. Um, towards the end of this talk, I'm going to get into how love functions in my work, but I, I was kind of just thinking of an, how do I introduce this subject so that um, it makes sense, um, so that I'm dealing with both the nebulous concept itself as well as how it relates to what I'm doing and who I am. Um, so as young people, um, mostly in this room, I'd say we grew up in a Western paradigm and we started out neutral. When we were born, when we were babies, we started out in neutral settings where we had one or two or more people looking after us who were feeding us, who were making sure that every single need was met. Um, that was an expression of love and care for us. But as we grow older, um, we start to move from that neutral state and we start to learn particular things about how to be in the world. Um, and one of those things, all of us actually learn how to dislike ourselves within this Western paradigm that we've grown up in. There are insidious ways that we are indoctrinated to silence the greatness within, to kind of dislike yourself, to shrink yourself, because we live in a culture that it's normal to shrink yourself, to not be too big, to be too big for your boots, to not be conceited. Um, and, it, and it manifests itself in different ways for each person. For me, um, I grew up in a pretty normal, loving home, but as soon as we moved from the trans guy to South Africa, I started to learn particular things, such as language. I learned a new language. I didn't know how to speak English for the first, I'd say, eight years of my life. Um, learned language, learned about things um, like swimming, hockey, crochet, um, a new culture, essentially. So while I was learning one thing, um, I started to unlearn how to be myself um, through many ways. So the best thing about indoctrination is that you don't, it's not painful. It's never some, someone coming to bash you over the head to say you suck or you're ugly. It's, it's, it's always insidiously, beautifully sewn into the normality of things. It's sewn into environments so you think that, oh, this must be normal. So how I started to kind of learn to unlove myself was being surrounded by um, architecture, a language, a general culture, um, a world that was completely removed from the world that I had come from, where I had to speak a new language and had to be a new person, and I learned about things such as ponytails, which I didn't come from a place where, you know, people had ponytails, our hair wasn't that long, um, but watching Jessica and Vanessa running in the field with their hair moving was something that made me feel like, oh, my hair's inferior, it must be inferior, and um, being told by a classmate that God left all the black people in the oven, that's why we burned and we're black, um, and the whole class laughing was normal. It was like, oh yeah, it's true. <laughs> that's how I kind of learned how to dislike myself and disassociate um, an essence that I'd been born with, which was love, from who I was becoming. Um, and as I said, it manifests in different ways. So I became this person from about age 11, all the way through high school, all the way through varsity, um, all the way through the first couple of years of my work. And um, I was always the good black at school. I was always, how, how in my old, adult life I'm learning how these things worked on me, was that I always wanted to be the good black. I always wanted to be the one that wasn't making a noise. I always wanted to be the class monitor, the prefect, the, you know, the one that's not like the other black girls. Um, and it worked for me. That was rewarded by the school. You become a prefect, you get a badge for being the one that's not really like the others. And in my work, the kind of things that I used to write about when I started writing for the Mail and Guardian in 2012, my goodness. I literally one day wrote a column about how 
I hate my kafara so much, and why would God make us with such hideous hair? Our lives suck, we are the dirt of the world, and on top of everything else, we still also have this hair to deal with that's not straight. How come everybody else's hair in the world moves except and ours is standing up? Of course, I was in a deep, deep, I think it was the darkest point before the dawn. Um, um, and then something happened. I went through an awakening and I, I was looking on the internet the other day and I found a beautiful piece of text, I wish I'd, I'd taken it with me, that explains the different stages of awakening for a person who has been, um, for lack of a better word, a chicken head, who, didn't, who doesn't know things, um, before you get woke, I guess. Um, um, and it kind of described these stages and, and as I read this text, I, I was like, I can't believe I'm just a textbook example. I thought I was, I was, thought I was special. It described every single point from how you, you, you grow up um, thinking that black people are inferior because you live in a deeply racist world that tells you in many different ways, insidiously, that black people are inferior. Um, and then you have a moment of awakening. Um, mine came when I wanted to relax my hair and my friend said, um, why would you want to do that? Um, and I said, because it's my choice, who are you? You're a man, you know, sit down. And it kind of got me thinking about a lot of things. Why do I want to straighten my hair? Why, why, do, why do I want to do it to feel pretty? Why do I not feel pretty in this way? And for the first time in my 29 years at that time, I kind of held the tuft of my, of, tuft of my hair and I, I really asked some deep questions like, um, you know, why do we call it gafarar when we don't want to be called gafars? Uh, why is it that we spend so much money and time um, straightening, fixing the texture of this hair. Why are we not happy with it? Why, what does that have to do with growing up in South Africa? Is apartheid linked to it? Is Mandela linked to it? Is, um, are there adverts? Is Snow White linked to it? Is what? I started to basically, I opened a Pandora's box that has kind of shaped me to become the kind of person that I am. So that was my big moment of awakening, um, where I, I started to understand the source of my lack of love for myself. Um, and how that changed my work, I went from posting about, you know, fashion items. I was just interested in clothing and cool stuff, music. And when I looked at my page, I realized, oh my gosh, Millie, all these references. Yes, you're into the music. Yes, you're into the fashion. But visually, it's a whole bunch of white people. Something that I'd never really thought about before. I didn't think, oh, I want to post white people only. It was just normal. That was just the way I was doing things. And so... What happens is you go from one extreme of hating to an extreme sense of pride, where now white people must fall. I don't want them anymore. Now I'm just going to post black people only. And I'm going to now, this is me, this is me. I've, I've, thrown, I've thrown them all the way. And so you go from one extreme to another. And th there was a particular point, it was March 2014, where you can see that my blog now is like very pro-black, um, to a point where I would sometimes go looking for just black people and not really think of the content of what I was putting out there, which in retrospect was a mistake. So it went from, yeah, um, this, this ignorance to an extreme pride. Um, and then during maybe six months into this period of, of, of black love, of, of pride, where you learn about your history, you learn about your culture, you, you learn about Egypt, you also become a bit of a hotep in the process. Um, <laughs> because you're just so in love with this new knowledge, with this new um, history, this new culture, this thing you didn't know about yourself, you kind of rooted out of you. Um, and I, I mean, when I go into things, I go all the way in. So I went in and I decided I'm going to make a film about this. I'm going to tell everyone, I'm going to ring the bell and tell everyone, you're great, black people, don't, don't believe what they told you. Um, and, in, and, and in that, there would be these little whispers from, you know, women um, talking about, how uh, 
patriarchal, the, the, the system of you know, black men and uh, the, 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 the struggle is. And I would kind of dismiss, ah, women, keep quiet, poof, I'm a woman. Ah, you know, the struggle is all, it's all about blackness, blackness first, blackness first, whatever. Until I realized, actually, if you have a vagina and breasts, this movement isn't necessarily for you. So the next stage, which this text was describing, is that you start, you start to realize, oh, you're a woman. Um, that's the second step of your identity. And then you say, oh, actually, feminism, what's that? You look up books, you go into, you learn from Gloria Steinem to Bell Hooks, Pumla uh, Kola, all of them, you're in. Learning, learning. So I kind of dropped the, the race card a little bit and took up the female card and I was a raging feminist and of course as I, I started a film food I was doing the race thing and for the women I was like come girls let's start feminist talk fell so I was like let's do something to again tell the world you know women you're wonderful there's all these you, you're so oppressed you don't even know you're oppressed um, and it, it, that's kind of how yeah in, in my work I was you know making these things that are in my head these new discoveries these new lessons um, in three dimensions um, and then at some point you learn that actually it's not very wise or fruitful to hate white people and it's not very wise or fruitful to hate men because white people are also victims of white supremacy as are men victims of patriarchy. And so you start to separate the people and the individuals, poor human beings, from systems and you start to say, okay, there's this thing called white supremacy and it manifests itself in so many ways. And black people can also be white supremacists. Um, because it's not our fault. And men are not necessarily the people that invented patriarchy. They certainly benefit from it, but there's a larger system that you must learn to address rather than address the people. Um, and that, I think, is a level of maturity that is very important to reach in, in, in um, kind of learning how to live in the world. Um, um, so in my work during that time, of course, um, I got into the jargon of being a woke person. And um, the jargon is, is basically academies making it into the mainstream world. So you start to talk about like, words like white supremacist, capitalist patriarchy, and the karyarchy. And um, you start to take these, academic, these terms that exist in academic texts, and the internet also didn't really help. Or it helped, I guess, for us to understand these things. You learn about intersectionality, and you're kind of throwing it out there in your work. And the people that are in the know, the people who are really woke, are constantly going, yes, queen, liking your work, sharing it, and you feel really, really cool. But you don't actually realize that the people that you're trying to reach, Abantu, just regular people, have no idea what you're saying. And in fact, you're coming across as antagonistic, you're attacking people, you're exclusive. This jargon excludes rather than includes. And it's also very, very tiring. Um, during that time of you know, my ascension up to wokeness, I didn't like myself very much. I didn't like the world very much. I thought it was a horrible place. Um, I, I, I was angry. Um, I was having, it was, and it was obviously spilling over into my personal relationships. There were some friends that I needed to drop because you said something problematic, or it would come home into my relationship, into my bedroom, and then suddenly this person that I love very, very deeply is now the enemy because patriarchy, you know? <laughs> And um, it, I, after a while, um, after writing many, many articles on my blog, um, on City Press, when I, where I was writing a column, and everywhere I went, um, I, I realized that, no, man, this, this, this can't really be the answer, because ultimately, I don't feel this love. You read a, a quote by Asata Shakur, who says, you cannot lead them if you do not love them. 
and you read about Martin Luther King and you read about all these great people who ultimately they end at this subject called love. But when you're so far away from it, because everything, you're putting all these obstacles in front of you in order to survive in this new you know, body of, of wokeness that you're in. Um, and I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I think um, ultimately it's part of the stage, the, diff the many different stages that I'm going through that I'm still going to go through in order to find the core of myself. But I realized somewhere along the way that I had to let it go because it wasn't working for me. And it was too easy. It's too easy to be cynical, to just dismiss something and be like, I, I don't trust you. You, you know, that's, you, you, said something, you said one set, wrong sentence or, I don't know, you, you know how woke people are, you can say anything and you can have a woke answer to it. Danielle, my friend Danielle is always like, please, anyone, just throw something at me and I'll give you a woke response to it. Anyone. <laughs> so what did you, I don't know, where did you go last night, what did you watch? Oh, please, somebody give me something. This is, it's a really fun exercise. Did, yes? Where did I get my pants? I got them at Super Ella, but you know Super Ella, it's really cool, she really makes nice clothes, but she's Afrikaans, so she's a white person. So when I am busy shopping at a, at a I'm, I'm empowering white, white capital, and I'm, I'm not shopping for a black designer. Somebody else, <laughs> give it to me. Anything. Do you put on makeup? Of course I put on makeup because I'm a feminist and I can do whatever I want with my body. Um, <laughs> So who are you to tell me that I can't, who are you to even question that I can wear makeup? I'm a free woman, it's a, I live in, I mean, I'm a feminist. Or the other side of it could be like, yes, I put on makeup, black people have been putting on makeup for hundreds of years, way before, and in fact, the Egyptians taught white people how to do makeup. <laughs> Last one. What do you think of you as a white woman? Bitch, please. <laughs> Pretty much. So like every day waking up and having to edit who I say hi to in the street, feeling guilty about, eh, this croissant is nice, I really want it, but eh, France, you know? <laughs> Constantly having to live like that, I just realized, no, man, there must be another way to do this thing. Um, and yeah, sorry, I was, I was going on about how easy it is to be cynical and how very easy it is to be divisive, which is essentially what intersectional politics is in practice. In theory, I love it. If you don't understand it, it, it is the intersection of um, different oppressions. So being um, racially um, discriminated against, being discriminated against if you're disabled, being discriminated against if you're a woman, being discriminated against if you're um, gay, all of those things when they intersect, you, you, you realize that all of our bodies are politicized and you walk around with a certain level of privileges. Um, and intersectional politics is wonderful in helping one, it helped me understand which lens through which to look at the world, how to function in the world, how to behave, how to not be ignorant, how to walk around knowing exactly who I am, where I am, and how I am either complicit or not complicit in systems of oppression. However, when it is practically applied, which is I think the mistake that a lot of us made on the internet and to each other in real life, one becomes you start to realize that, hey, but this is oppression Olympics. Um, if we're a group of girls trying to get together to start something, somebody is gonna come along and be like, yeah, but all you guys are light-skinned. So you got light-skinned privilege and you don't understand what it's like to be a dark-skinned girl. Or all of you guys are able-bodied. Does your event come with um, the ability for people with wheelchairs to come? If it doesn't, then you ain't shit. Um, or if a 
group of women of different races are coming together, we all have a common enemy, which is, I guess, capitalism or white supremacy or all those things. But we will put stumbling blocks in front of each other and rate each other based on these privileges that, we, that each of us hold. And apply those practically to ensure that um, there's a hierarchy. This hierarchy that we're trying to run away from, we, all we do is recreate it again when we're in a space and saying, okay, sisters or you know, a community coming together, yeah, but you're a white man, you can't say anything, you must keep quiet. And it also kind of sells this idea that just because I'm oppressed in a particular way, I have more life experience or I know better or, you know, uh, people, one must have nothing then. You know, what did our parents work hard for? Um, I can't just go to Paul's homemade ice cream and have an ice cream because, Vela, that's a luxury. What about the person who can't afford ice cream? It's, it's, there's constantly something you can always say. So my understanding was that I like this thing theoretically in terms of how to look at the world, but we still need to work out and figure out how do we apply it on a practical, daily basis so that the love that we desire, that we so desperately need as humans, because we're all just visiting these bodies. These are just houses we're visiting for one lifetime. We're going to go to another lifetime and visit another body and have a different life experience, just like we came from another life and we, we had a different experience. So essentially, the essence that, we, that humans have been um, wrestling with is this, this thing that's inside, that travels, that, that, that can be touched by a glance, that can be touched by a word, that can be touched by a hug um, or a memory in all of us. So, the way we were practically applying as you know, feminists or black women or black people or all these people that are oppressed or as humans essentially was kind of very much anti the love that we wanted to find. So we can say an Asata Shakur quote but we're not actually living it on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, it's very easy to be judgmental, it's very easy to be angry and stay angry um, and it's not radical. It's very easy to be radical in that sense of, I don't want you, I don't like you, you know, me, I'm sticking with my people, blah, blah, blah. But in it, I finally, finally, finally understood that actually the most radical thing to do is to love somebody. I was like, wow. I grew up reading, you know, being a team Malcolm X and not Martin Luther King. And in the past couple of years, in these post-Mandela months that we've had, I also, you know, had a, an anger towards Mandela. I was like, nah, guy, you, you were too easy on these people. Look at, look at us now, we're, we're stuck. Sure, one can still argue that, but the things that these two gentlemen and these leaders were reaching for is, is a love that is actually a lot more radical, knowing what we know, especially in the last two years um, in the decolonization process, which is, is not ever going to end, is that ultimately we want something that's as radical as love. Um, and how do we achieve this? Um, these are the kinds of things that I'm, I'm wrestling with, with myself now. Now that I've realized that, okay, cool, you don't want to walk around the street being angry because um, it's actually, it doesn't work, it doesn't make you happy. It hasn't worked. Fighting, being antagonistic, hasn't worked. I believe that it was very necessary, though, in the last two years for um, the decolonization process to kind of take the posture that it took in South Africa. We did need a moment where black kids were just like screaming and being like, actually, we are angry. We've never, ever, ever had a moment in this country to express just how mad we are about these disparities and these injustices. It is time for, we've always been silenced. We've been silenced by rainbowism. We've been silenced by Mandelaism. All this nonsense that said you can't feel. We've been provoked daily on one side, but you actually can't react. So I'm happy for um, those moments and, and how they manifested in poetry, in books, in talks, in panel discussions, in films, in, in everything that's developing as a result. But I personally, in my own work, and my own journey, I'm in a place where I'm like, okay, cool. 
the screaming, the hollering, the sulking has happened for me personally. It's still going to happen for many other people. Um, for them to go through these various stages that I read are actually just like a textbook. Like it's a list of what stages to go through. So now I'm at the stage where I'm like, okay, cool. I'm tired of screaming. I'm tired of being angry. How do I find this love that I so desperately need? And um, in December last year, I went to the Eastern Cape, where I'm from, and I went to visit my mother's um, aunt, who is my grandmother. My mother's mom died when she was five, so I never knew my, um, my, my mother's mother. And I spent, I spent some time with her in her home, um, deep in the villages, um, where there was no, hardly any internet, there's no um, tarred roads, there was no Johannesburg, there was no mixing of different languages and cultures and people, and there was no white people. And I was like, wow, this is a very strange feeling for me because I'm used to kind of having to pronounce my blackness and be, I'm proud, I'm a woman, I'm this and that. Now I'm in a place where but it's banal. It's just life. It's just, I'm a cluster just going about their daily lives. And I kind of stopped and I really enjoyed the poetry of life in motion there. Slow, just being, people being themselves. And then I started to realize that this is a lane or an area in my work that I can, that I should probably explore. Because who are we when we're not being fighting? Well, we're not, when we're not fighting, when we're not going and, and you know, being anti this, who, who are we at our core? And, when I, and after about 10 days of being there, I looked around and I said, you know, essentially, like at the bottom, nothing is wrong with us. Nothing. It's only when you're put in a place where you're, you're forced to fight or to be antagonistic or to react to nonsense that you realize, okay, there's struggles to take up. And I decided I want to try to write about the beauty of banality in black life in my work as another way, as like a backdoor entrance to coming to talk about blackness. So I wasn't going to be like, blackness is great, blackness is, you know, we were lied to, all of, uh, you know, we, we, we invented everything, uh, mathematics, uh, we sailed, we were the almanacs, we sailed to America way before Columbus came, all of those things that I was learning in my first period. Now I was at a point where I was like, I can actually just write about this thing from the inside of it, without necessarily it having to prove itself. Let me just write about my grandmother there sitting, you know, shuffling around our house, or this person at this Mgidi doing this. Um, and in so doing, I was kind of released from that need to prove and that anger and that angst and anxiety that I was feeling every time I had to put out an article. And I started to see the beauty from within. I started to fall in love with my culture and my people from a completely different perspective. Same about women. And, and I think it's something that a lot of us who are in the creative industries can start to do, is if we shift our gaze a little bit, you will find what you're looking for. So, if you're going to go, I went to Grahamstown for the festival about two weeks ago, and I haven't been to Grahamstown, I studied there, I haven't been there in 11 years, and when I went, I mean, when I, when I was at Rhodes, I was a kid, it was fun, it was amazing, it was the best three years of my life, I made so many friends, and I just lived, such a beautiful, wonderful, privileged life, like completely carefree. And then you leave and you grow up and you learn about Colonel John Graham and you learn about who was settled upon in Grahamstown when they celebrate the 1820 settlers. You kind of, you know, get a better sense and you become very angry. So I went there 
quite you know ready looking for the fight the colonialism and of course i got it you get there and you got you drive on somerset street i was staying in a bnb on milner street there are monuments everywhere celebrating the 1820 settlers and a one-sided history and i i couldn't enjoy the plays and the shows that i was going to see because i was so upset about the space these bloody pressed ceilings this bloody architecture is not ours so the whole time i was like you know upset and I couldn't see the beauty that I was there, that I was, that I was being paid for to go and see. Um, and I came back to Joburg and I told my friend Nana, I was like, you Nana, I'm done. So I was in pain and I was like, you You know, I was like, just going crazy. She's like, you know, Millie, for the first time, and she's closer like me, she's like, yes, Jamam, I didn't have the same experience. I was, I've never been there, and I just had a completely different experience of the town. I've never seen such a caliber of people. I'm a closer. The people at the, at the petrol station, the people at the hotel where she was staying, the people at the ticket offices, the people selling the Q newspaper on the streets, those people, I've never seen such a high caliber of human. And when I stopped to think about it, I was like, oh my God, yes, that's so true. The people in the hood, the people at the B&B where I was, where I was cooking, and the way they were just handling me and other people. I was like, I completely missed something here. I went looking for this and I found it and she went not looking for anything and she saw something completely different in the exact same place. So you seek the thing that you are looking for. And so I'm shifting my gaze now to kind of come at, at, at this black love, at the self-love from a completely different angle of, I don't, of, of, I don't know, not looking for the things. I, you're not going to find love in a fight necessarily or when when you're going you know when you when you're looking for the, the trouble so i'm currently learning also that i can do everything i possibly can to change the world i can build a school i can build buildings i can get money from the government to open 10 farms and change all the literature the books in the school the whole curriculum i can do all of that but change doesn't necessarily work like that it has to start with you. I realized, oh shit, I have to change myself, actually. So the, the piece that I'm looking for, I've got to create it within my own space when I'm by myself. How do I do that? And it starts with going back to the source. Okay, how, do you, how did you learn to dislike yourself? How did you, okay, thanks, great, I'm almost done. How did you learn to um, hate yourself? Um, and then to restore, to kind of, you know, replant the seedlings of that childhood, to rewater them again with a new sense of knowledge. And, and my writing, I feel so much better being a writer. I don't feel burdened anymore. I don't care how many people share it. I'm like, oh my God, this thing is now aligning. Like, the, the, the more I get to know myself, the more I get to like myself, the more I get to feel less pressure about being a writer. Because now, at some point, you had to perform your, write, your blackness every day in your writing or your femininity or whatever. Now I don't feel that sense of performance. Now I'm, I'm completely married to the art of writing. Of course my perspective is going to be, my name is Milutu Bongen. So whatever I write is written by a black person. But now I'm not necessarily having to constantly state that because what if I want to write about white people? I also want to have that authority. What if I want to write about space and I want to write about like trolleys that are like planning an escape from the mall to like a dystopian planet somewhere? You know, I, my name will say, will say everything I need to know. But now I'm married to the art of storytelling. Um, and, and, that, and, and that makes me fall in love with it. It makes me really, really, truly love. And it's, it's, and it's, 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 it's evident in who is now suddenly circulating my work. I got a call from my cousin from Willow Vale. You don't know that place because it's like, it will avail, nobody knows where it is. 
She called me on a ticket box. And I started crying because I was like, yes, this is what I wanted. This is, this is the kind of person I want reading my work because she's touched. I've like reached the person that I want. And it's like it took a whole big circle of coming to a point of, okay, how am I going to use this gift that I've been given? How is it going to be? How am I going to be a vessel for this thing? Um, and, and it came from a sense of, you know, learning to love blackness in a different way. And ultimately, now I'm also freed and released to love humans now. Now I can see that, fuck, man, we're all just trying. We're all oppressed to some degree. My pain is not necessarily more important than someone else's pain. We're all oppressed by one big system that says, fuck you to us every single day. And if you touch that part of, the, of, of each human being, no matter what, what body they come in, I mean, the radicals will laugh at me. They, they'll laugh. They'll be like, oh, shame. So the white people got to her. But actually, I feel so much freer. I feel so much better. I feel like, like I can actually start living my life. Everything in my life is better. My skin is glowing. My relationship is better. Um, my work relationships are better. Of course, I haven't like, found you know, an elixir of life. I'm still learning. This is also still the very beginning of yet another chapter. I might grow differently in, in a year or two. But I'm, I'm so happy to have come to a point where I feel like I can share a few things about love because I'm trying to, it's, it's, it's working, I can see it working for me. I, I, when I wake up in the morning, I don't feel like, oh my God, the world is a horrible place. Now I'm like, okay, how am I going to find the poem in each moment today? And I was very nervous about this, but I think I've managed to pass on what I wanted. Thank you. More from our conversation in just a bit, but first, we have to take care of some business. And this week's episode is made possible by Dropmark. I've been using Dropmark for about four years straight on projects local to global. So small businesses to global advertising campaigns. This is Sean O'Brien, design director and Dropmark user at advertising agency Mullen Lowe. He's here to tell us what Dropmark does. It's like a digital wall that you can pin stuff up on. So you can move from your inspiration mood board phase all the way through final completion and, and approval of assets with teams all over the country or all over the world in all different kinds of formats. So you can look at flat technology or you can look at, you know, motion and film. And you're basically tracking your work from start to finish. Right. It's like a time capsule, you know, like a really great archive of the creative process. And it completely eliminates the need for endless meetings. Yeah. If you're on the project and you're overseeing it, then you can just sort of jump in the pool, take a look, see the progress, add a few comments. The comments get emailed out to people. And then you jump back out. It makes it more fluid. Plus, has anyone ever accomplished anything on a conference call? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> a simple answer is no. Dropmark is the smart way to organize your bookmarks, files, and notes into visual collections. Use it on your own or with your creative team to gather inspiration, review designs, and plan your next big idea. Dropmark is all your stuff in one simple, visual, private place. To get a free month for your team, visit dropmark.com slash creative mornings. My conversation with Mila Sutando took place in December of 2016, when the United States presidential election results were still pretty fresh in our minds, at least in this country. So I had to ask if she was up to speed on the news. Yes, I have been paying attention to the news, though reluctantly. <laughs> um, but it doesn't come as a shock to me at all, um, because this is this is the kind of stuff that um, African Americans and Black South Africans are constantly dealing with and constantly trying to alert the rest of the world, you know, to its reality. I think that 
white supremacists out that are coming out now, like those KKK people and like the really hectic ones who are just like unapologetic. I think they've always been there, but but they've been sidelined and kind of relegated to a corner of where, where they can't be taken seriously because obviously the rest of are good and we don't think that we don't we're not that extreme um it's it's quite similar here in that you have the extremists who want their own land and they call people by the k-word and it's all horrible and you'll find that the the larger white majority uh the population doesn't take them seriously because we all consider ourselves good people right but then in so doing and ignoring the crazies it's kind of for me i, I find that People are complicit in 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 the spread of racism by not doing enough, by not saying enough against it. So yes, those guys are crazy, but how how did how did they how did they vote for Trump? Why are all these people voting for Trump? How did it happen if we're all good people? Um, and I think it speaks to the idea that not liking something is not enough to make it go away, and that's why this is happening is because many people were like, we'll just relegate these crazy people to uh, one side and, and we'll just carry on doing, not realizing that actually the, the silence and, and the inaction around issues of race, uh, it, it, it amplifies them. It's not even racism. It's the power of fear in people and, and how, how human beings can, can, can be led to like completely irrational decisions that are essentially against themselves. And you're right. We, sh- we shouldn't be shocked at all. Movements have been formed. You know, there's Black Lives Matter. People have been saying, please lis- listen to us. It, we don't want to kill anyone. We don't want to hurt anyone. We just want to not be killed in the street. That should have been a huge wake-up call for the rest of the country that this shouldn't be happening in 2016. And, and, and people shouldn't be fighting these struggles on their own. It should be everybody. is. This is unacceptable to everyone. Right. You know, it shouldn't. it's not an us-against-them thing anymore. Um. And and now you know because now look it's affected the the silence around such movements and 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 what they call gaslighting people's issues. This is it's all linked. The trans issue, the the feminist issues, all of these things are interlinked. Um, and I guess I guess the you know putting like sweeping them under the carpet or just avoiding them has created this monster um, that is now you know supposedly the most powerful man in the world. And you make a great point around how it's easy to feel good when you were saying that you get all of this positive reinforcement on the internet for all of the things that you're writing about. And when that encouragement is there, you're really just speaking to your own bubble of like-minded individuals. Mm. But it's incredibly difficult to change someone's mind on a topic or a belief. Mm. And so what's the approach when you do get that intended audience? Are you, are you hoping to change minds or are you just hoping that, you know, your side is louder? Oi, um, that's a very good question. Right now, I am the adage that is on my mind, um, which which I've been kind of uh, it's passed down to me from my mentor, a man by the name of Jane Idu. He says, um, in in this Trump-led world, the aim right now should not necessarily be to change systems, but to change the human being, and that is a completely different approach to politics. In that, when I'm not now saying let's decolonize only or let's change systems because systems are built by humans. So how do we engage with human beings and their irrational thoughts and fears? And and as a creative person, it's a challenge. It's a, it's a beautiful challenge to have. How do we 
change human beings um, and not necessarily minds, but hearts. The, the, the approach that we were using before, which is just like throwing facts and logic to people doesn't work. <laughs> As we see in America, it doesn't work. People cling on to their irrational fears and, and, they, and those fears direct their actions. So, so we have to ask wh- why, why did so many people vote for Donald Trump and, and why are so many people in South Africa, so many um, different, I mean, we have all kinds of pathologies that like, you know, crescendo on a daily basis in our country. And and I'm trying to think of ways of how do we engage people? Like how do we decolonize emotions and feelings? Uh, what does that, what does that require? And right now I'm thinking of spaces, um, safe spaces where people can come and be honest. Um, I've just finished writing a piece about how in South Africa, uh, white women are completely silenced, um, because they are the closest to the proverbial oppressor, the white male. Um, unlike us, that we have a black, we have black feminist movements all over the place. Um, our mothers, our mothers, mothers, the, black women have always collectivized and felt ha- and had a voice in our communities. We are taken seriously, even though there's patriarchy, even though there's you know uh, extreme you know uh, violence against women. But w- there is no powerlessness um, compared to how I'm discovering that a lot of my white friends in their middle class lives. There is no spaces for them for to, to gather and talk about white identity um, in the 21st century and how some of them went there during apartheid, they were young, and yet they have inherited this identity of being white in South Africa in 2016. What does that mean? Um, how do they deal with um, their own personal life issues, but also kind of um, elevate their... Uh, emotional engagement to dealing with identity in the same way black people, brown people, women, homosexuals, trans people are forced to deal with their identity issues, whether they like it or not, because of the kind of world we live in. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. So how do we appeal to that guilt that they feel and the listlessness and the loneliness and the isolation and, and create spaces where we can address these feelings so that we can transcend them and that will affect how we approach the social and economic issues. Let's do the work of unpacking our identities, which is very difficult. And, and I believe that people should do those in, in our own races. So I feel safe when I'm with black women. I can speak freely. I'm not offending anyone. I'm not, there's no one that I'm going to be defending myself against. So white women need to get together and decide what are we going to do as white women um, for ourselves. Leave other people. Let's deal with our problems first. What are white men going to do? What does it feel? What does it feel like to be a white man in in the world today? You know, with all the white supremacy and and how you, you now now you have to choose. Like that's not me, right? You know, as Matt, you have to say, "Gosh, those guys don't represent my ideals," but I still walk around in a white body. What does that mean? What is whiteness in the twenty first century? We all have our work to do in terms of like. The identity stuff, but after the identity, we can't stay there. We have to think of the 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 heart space. How do we how do we move now to the heart space and and even draw people in using um, elements from that space, which 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 I believe can change human beings. Because once you engage with the person's emotions and feelings, gosh, it's much better than trying to convince them um, to to believe in a particular idea. And this all sort of circles back to to you. Because you do a great job of taking us through your personal journey, breaking down the stages of self-discovery. And you say that you're now beyond the screaming stage. And you also finished the talk with the thought, how am I going to find the poem in each moment today? Mm -hmm. Which I thought was wonderful. So I'm curious, since this talk took place in July of 2016, how how have you found your progress to be? Yeah, ish. (laughs) Um, (laughs) 
Yeah, it, it's not easy to, to, to be in that state of mind every single day because of work, because of traffic, because of real life, because of money, because of, you know, time, many things. Um, however, I do meditate as often as I can and I do pray and and connect with people who are on this same wavelength. We have a WhatsApp group and we're constantly texting each other poems and writing long, um, beautiful letters um, about the world that we imagine. So um, six months later, I've actually manifested a group of people. I met them quite recently. Um, and, and, and I think that comes from the intention that I had, which was to look at my, my life and look at existence uh, in that way. I think once, once your mind is, is in, a, in, a, in a particular position, you do attract like-minded people who can kind of keep you on the path. So it went from, you know, be, me being alone and thinking about these things and going through my own journey quite quietly in the corner to me now being part of a group and going to, you know, every, every, every couple of weeks, I go to this farm in the free state whereby we meet and we meditate and we take hikes and we talk and we make music and we, 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 we imagine the kind of world that we want. So, um, I, I feel very fortunate that, that this has been my path, but it's hard on like, I'm not, I'm not like this every single day. I mean, gosh, the last week was horrible. And I've been crying and swearing and, and, you know, just reacting to, to life's, you know, everyday little difficulties. Um, but with the bigger picture, I know what the bigger picture is. So I don't feel lost. I don't feel homeless uh, spiritually or emotionally or ideologically anymore. I kind of feel like, oh, gosh, this is where I want to stay. And there's so much room to grow in this space. But, yeah, I, I like that I found a community, like, to kind of, um, uh, institutionalize, I guess, these ideas and, and people that can hold me accountable as well. Oh, definitely. It's so important to have that, that support group and the people who will, yeah. who will call you out on your nonsense, yes, you know? <laughs> um, so last thing before we let you go, it's a question that we ask all of our guests. If you could go back 10 years and meet yourself, what's one thing you would tell her? 10 years back. I, I would have just lost my father hmm. 10 years ago at this time. And I would have told myself that everything you lose, loss, I would have, I would have explained to myself that losing things is not a bad thing. Losing things is part of growth. Um, in fact, it's usually when life elevates you to a new, uh, part of yourself, a new part of understanding existence. So please don't look at this very, very sad thing that's just happened to you as, 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 as a terrible thing. Um, this is also an opportunity for you to see your father in everything that you do and, and, and involve him in every, every, everywhere you go, which is what I actually have been doing. I, I still talk to my father every single day um and uh, and i think i took that that very tragic time and i turned it around by by kind of you know not looking at loss as loss i looked at it as a huge gain actually in many ways so everything that is is not always what it seems wow that's beautiful <laughs> Thanks. 
If you like what you've been hearing so far this season, please go to the iTunes podcast page and leave us a review. Thank you. Next week, we'll hear Rita Kroner speak to Creative Mornings Helsinki about her road to sobriety. My idea of alcoholic or drug addict was that they were poor, they had made bad choices in their life, or they were just generally bad people. That's how I thought. And I was not like that. Our thanks to Tando Bangela and everyone at Creative Mornings. This episode was produced and edited by S. Mateo with sound engineering, mixing, and original score by Devin C. Johnson at Little Library Studios in collaboration with S. Mateo Music. This week's rooster comes courtesy of Johannes from Helsinki. Follow us on Twitter at Creative Morning. Remember, it's singular. And use hashtag PodcastCM when you tweet at us. For a complete archive of talks or just to get involved, go to creativemornings.com.